Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's interview, we're speaking with Peter Perry, who's an investment banker with Young America Capital. His focus is on climate, energy, and infrastructure. I was very interested to have this conversation, as raising capital for any company is difficult. But financing capital-intensive, early-stage energy transition projects is a whole new level of complexity. What I really enjoy about this interview is how Peter unpacks how energy and infrastructure investors view investing in these projects. For example, unlike investing in venture stage software companies, where it's usually a winner takes all, for energy transition opportunities, there's a far greater potential that there will be multiple winners in the space. They can grow and even support each other as the industry starts to flourish. If you're interested in hearing an investment banker's perspective, then this is a great episode for you. And before we get started, I'm happy to host this episode with the support of Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services, and it's been supporting the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company, and I encourage you to reach out to them at any time. You can find their contact information in the show notes. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Corey. It's great to be on. Yes. We connected on all things of LinkedIn, which is quite an amazing tool for meeting new people. But your background, your profile, and your, your career experience really interested me. But the best way to get that across is to hand it over to you for an intro. No, I appreciate it very much, Corey. So I'm an investment banker. I lead the Climate, Energy, and Infrastructure Group at Young America Capital. It's a New York-based investment bank. There's 70 bankers at the firm a generalist boutique bank, and myself and one other partner focused just on climate, energy, and infrastructure. Our practice is divided between large-scale projects. We're actively engaged on $7 billion plus of energy transition projects. We're also active on a number of venture capital raises, $25 million and up, Series A and up in the venture world. So that's us in a nutshell. And then we've got a team of six that support us. I also have a brand called Energy Media. You can find it at energy.media. And I am not a media person, but we're trying to do some cool podcasts and trying as hard as we can to make it entertaining and appeal to the institutional investor community. But it is, of course, a challenge to make a very, let's say, a technically detailed topic entertaining. So that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. Interesting. I think we have the foundations of a great conversation ahead of us. So <laughs> I look forward to it. Yeah, let's get into it. I, I am interested about the world of energy transition and banking that and financing that. So can you give us some background on these deals? And the thing I, I'm interested in is who are investing in these deals? 
even to a point of talking valuations, metrics, expectations. So can you paint the picture there for us? For sure. So we only work with institutional investors. We're not doing any sort of crowdfunding or outreach to retail investors. We're all FINRA SEC registered bankers, but we just focus on the institutional side. So typically we're talking about infrastructure funds, oil and gas funds that are moving into the energy transition, private equity funds. It's a really interesting time because there's there's a number of investment vehicles from institutional investors and funds that are out there that are looking at energy transition, but are just sort of dipping their toe into the water. So it, it's not really yet what I would call an established asset class, the way, say, an infrastructure investor might be. So we're seeing sure. some infrastructure funds that say, yeah, we want to do energy transition. Others that are saying it's too risky because mm. it's, there's too much uncertainty. And we're seeing the same from oil and gas funds, funds that have traditionally invested in oil and gas. Some of them want to do energy transition, others not. So that's that's how I'd qualify the investors. And then we are seeing quite a bit of interest from real estate investors, as well as some large family offices that have traditionally invested in real estate. And I think that's a function of the kids of the family offices wanting to make an impact on the planet, as opposed to, let's just say, purely bricks. So I think that's a fairly good summary of, of the parties that look at these kind of deals. I'm going to digress quick here, but your point about family offices and the children of the family offices pushing for for things that they see and they believe in, that is an emotional argument. And, And I put that forward once that even family offices and institutions think emotionally. You know, things can come back to the logic of the numbers of the deal, but there still is always a a degree of emotion and desire there. And so you kind of touched on it there. That's really interesting. You do see it a bit. Now, I'll say in the early days of impact investing, and I've been in the energy market since 2011, 100% focused on it, kind of dipped my toe in in 2009. So I've been in a while. I'll say in the early days, there's an expectation you could provide a lower return than market and get mm. away with it. But that is not the case today. Today, you have to provide just as good of a return as, let's say, a regular investment, but do it with some sort of positive impact on the planet. Okay, this is interesting to hear because that's often what I've thought is that there was an opportunity to go out there and finance deals that have a feel-good factor and it makes up for that delta between a market return and, and what's potentially coming out of a project. But I felt that those days that ship was going to sail and now people have to be delivering at market or better returns. How are you seeing companies be able to do that? And with these new energy transition projects, and how are you communicating that to investors? Yeah, I'll say, you know, just pure pure and simple, up until the Inflation Reduction Act, there really wasn't a great way to do it. Like there mm-hmm. were some deals that could do it when it was, let's say, pure energy transition. But now with the Inflation Reduction Act and the different incentives that the government's provided, you can deliver those market returns combining the incentives into it. So you take a market like RNG, renewable natural gas. They're heavily reliant on what are called RINs and LCFS credits. So D3 RINs come out of the EPA, LCFS out of the state of California. When you add those to the total return, they offer a very attractive overall total return. If you took those credits from the government away, it wouldn't be as quite as attractive. So I think the establishment of good government policy that factors in sufficiently the negative externalities of, let's say, traditional energy allow 
energy transition investments now to offer a very attractive at or above market return. If hmm, this is this is an interesting one, and I want to totally deviate from our list of questions here, but let's talk philosophy. If you look at it from a libertarian standpoint, the the libertarian would say this is absolutely wrong. The government should not be stepping in. Or if you look at it from a a progress standpoint, the government's involvement and incentives here can lead us towards progress that perhaps could enable us to be financially sustainable, cleaner energy in the future. Where do you land on that? And and how do you look at what's happening? And is it actually sustainable for a government to continue to be incentivizing? Or can we eventually get to a point where we wouldn't need those incentives? It's a great question. And I think in the you asked about what's most understood about energy transition. I'll say that the biggest thing is, I'll start off by saying, I do think some form of energy transition is essential for our long-term survival as a species, but I'll say in the very long term. I definitely don't subscribe to the world's coming to an end in 10 years. It's just not going to happen. And I think when people overstate that, it actually hurts the case. Hmm. On the flip side of that, I'll say the energy transition that we do, it's really impossible if the energy we transition to isn't better for humans on a day-to-day basis than what we have now. Hmm. That's essentially the yardstick. So government can provide incentives to get things off the ground, but in the long run, and I'll I'll give you the example of hydrogen, which is my favorite example, Hmm. qualifies for a $3 per kilogram tax credit and direct pay under the Inflation Reduction Act, right? So that's a big number. You know, it's, it's hard for people to put that in context, but it's a big number. And in the long run, that's not going to be there. But in the short run, it's going to help get that hydrogen market off the ground and drive innovation. And that's going to ultimately lead us to a form of energy that has advantages over fossil fuels, that actually has advantages for people, not Mm -hmm. just for the climate and the planet, right? So I personally believe that humans must flourish in whatever energy transition we, we go to. And it has to be not just as good, but better than fossil fuels for us to move there aggressively. So that's the way I look at it. And so to your point, I think government has to be offering some assistance to get things off the ground, because otherwise, from a libertarian standpoint, I'd say that's great philosophically, but we're going to get left behind because the other countries are doing it. So the reality is that I think government has always looked both in terms of what's best for the country, in terms of competitively with the other nations, geopolitically, and also what's best for the people. The government has to factor all that in because it doesn't do us any good if all the people in this country are libertarians, but the Chinese surpass us and then come over here yes. and, and outcompete us. So yeah. I think it's got to be, a, it's, I think a balanced approach is essential. And I won't say how I, I vote politically, but let's say I was highly skeptical of whatever was going to be put forward, call it the Green New Deal if you want. I think calling it Inflation Reduction Act was was actually a very interesting piece of marketing that they did. But ultimately, what's I was say, isn't there a bit of irony in there? It's very ironic. If you look at what's actually in the bill, I think in the end, it's good for it's good for us as a country. And we've seen since it passed. Just to give specific examples, we've seen two funds that we know of that are big, big funds that have have always traditionally only invested in Europe open up headquarters in New York and then want to invest specifically in the U.S. physical asset energy transition. So to me, that's good for all of us as Americans when we have 
big smart money funds come out of Europe and come over here and really want to look at our country because, you know, whether it's energy transition or just any infrastructure, our country needs more of it. Like you go to our airports, you go to our roads, compare that to say somewhere like Dubai, we're really getting left behind in terms of having state-of-the-art infrastructure, which we always used to have. So we are in desperate need of more capital put towards energy transition and infrastructure in our country. So if the IRA accomplishes that, it's to me, it's a good thing for us. Yeah. And theoretically, my, my view here and what I'm hearing as well is that these government incentives over a period of time will enable companies to actually reach scale for the infrastructure, for example, for hydrogen to be built in place because there's an economic model that works. And over time, it could be phased out. And that's where you'll see a sustainable industry that's been growing because it's been fertilized by the government. There's no doubt about it. I mean, we see it. So we're working actively on a large scale hydrogen projects, about 200 tons a day in the state of Pennsylvania. They're actually going to make physical hydrogen, right? We're also working on a hydrogen venture deal where this technology was is part of what they use in NASA today. So today, you know, when they shoot rockets into outer space, they're using liquid hydrogen. Liquid hydrogen is the best way to move hydrogen around, but it's deep tech. It's very deep tech. And if it wasn't for the IRA incentivizing projects to actually make hydrogen, there'd be no hydrogen to liquefy, right? Mm. So this, yep. this technology wouldn't be getting investor interest. And then somebody else, somewhere else in another country or, or who knows where might surpass us. So I definitely see the kind of incentivization structure in hydrogen leading to significant innovations where your Silicon Valley investors, for example, now can get behind this stuff hmm. because the bottom line is it, it costs more and it takes longer than what traditional venture investors invest in. So you take the big Silicon Valley guys, they're going to they're gonna want to invest in software, in stuff that they can get a quick turn. You know, we call it capital light stuff. Now, those funds are moving aggressively now to energy transition. And it wouldn't have happened, I don't think, if it wasn't for the Inflation Reduction Act because of okay. just giving them um, better economics to support this kind of really long time frame that energy transition investments on the tech side, deep tech stuff takes. Hmm. Can you talk to me about financing these deals and what it takes to, to pitch these opportunities? And I'll give, give an example. And I really love the, to focus on hydrogen because I think it's a pretty fascinating energy source. But I think misunderstood, and that's both by, call it the retail audience or the, the, the average listener, and also institutions. You know, they might look and go, I don't get it. So if you bring in a VC level deal, still venture, there's still a lot of testing to be done. How do you pitch that? And how do you set expectations for potential returns that you actually get big money to write checks for? No, it's a great question. And, and I want to be clear that the venture guys like high tech. And so what we call it is picks and shovels. Okay. No venture investor wants to deploy a billion dollars into a project. That's that's a totally different kind of investor. You know, that's that's more your fund, private equity funds, infrastructure funds, separate types of funds. But the venture guys, they they want to do picks and shovels. They want to invest in things that are going to enable the scaling of the hydrogen economy. So an example is something that liquefies hydrogen or something that can store it, something that can move it. 
hmm. maybe an, a unique combustion system that allows you to burn hydrogen in a combustion turbine, in a gas turbine, yep. that kind of stuff, where as the hydrogen economy takes off, these picks and shovel types technologies are going to be essential and they're going to be deployed in mass and be more scalable, usually heavy on the IP, hopefully not so asset heavy either, some kind of large, big margin type businesses. Gotcha. Can you take me into the mechanics as well? If I was a deal and came to you and said, this is my technology and you did your DD as a banker, said, yeah, you know what? We could, we could put our name behind this. We could take this to the street. What is that process like and how do we, how do we frame up the pitch? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So I'll say the first thing that we do is if it's a seed type of a deal, if it's just pure technology, We'll have a call with the management and we'll sort of walk them through our process and say, hey, guys, go do this yourselves and come back to us once you guys have product market fit sort of proven out. Because we as a banker, just because of our cost structure, we can't get behind seed stage deals and there's just too much risk. I mean, we've seen we've seen a lot of tech on the on the pure tech side that it takes seven years, 10 years for that tech to to really get to market. And we just can't be around that long and we cost too much. So when it's earlier, early stage like that, we really think that it's better for the company to go to market on their own. Now, once a company has gotten to the place where they've solved what we call product market fit, and I'm sorry if I'm over-defining this, if, you, if you're, the audience already knows what this is, like I don't have to define it, but basically they've sold something to the market at commercial terms. And we also like to see it actually installed. Because with these physical products, again, unlike software where you can alpha test, beta test, do all this stuff and it's easy to fix, you just change the line of code. These physical products, you have to get them out there in market under commercial terms, customer pays for it, you put it in and you got to be able to maintain it. As long as they have one happy customer who's not like a nobody you ever heard of, but like a real customer who says, we have the product at our facility or we're using this product and we love it and we want to buy more. That's what we need before we get we get involved in a deal. And then at that point, I can go more into what the process looks like, but I'll, I'll pause and see if you have any sort of follow-ups. No, I think that is a good start and then framing up, right? And, and I think when, even when you do have that product market fit, you're in market, you've got a real legitimate customer a legitimate name who said, yeah, you know what, we'll give you the benefit of the doubt. And if you can turn some positive results, even then these companies have a chasm in front of them of being able to raise the capital and then scale up deployment. So that is, I think that's the hurdle. And I've heard a lot of people in this position even come to me and say, this is where we're at. So what do we do then? Great question. So one thing as far as how do we take them to market, we've got to show scalability and we've got to be able to show unit economics in a simple way. Mm. Of course, they need to have protected IP because because this moves slower, it's not there's really no network effects in the way that there are with, mm. let's say, a social media or an app. So when, you, when you're talking about social media or an app, it's asset light, you get it out there, first mover advantage, and then you have network effects, right? Because if there's a lot of people on that app, it's hard to get them to switch. That really doesn't exist in energy. So if you- if There's you, no virality of it. Yeah, there's just, there's no virality. There's yeah. no network effects. It's got none of that stuff. And we, we kind of look at it this way. In apps, it tends to be winner take all. Like if you remember, people funded these apps, there was a hundred of them, 99 of them went to zero. 
one of them took the whole market in a yeah. lot of these areas. In energy, it's not like that. You can have a lot of different winners because there's a lot of different use cases, hmm. but you're also not going to have as many unicorns. You're not going to have a company that goes to $10 billion or $100 billion. Like hmm. in, I think you might have, there's, there's a possibility every once in a while, like a Tesla, like those kind of scenarios, but it's, it's going to be rare. You can already see this with Tesla as the stocks come back, as people realize, holy cow, even though they had first mover advantage, any other car OEM can just now just come in and compete with them. Yeah, You don't have that sort of network effect. But anyway, my point is we think the exit in this looks like, okay, more companies are going to have some wins and it probably makes a lot of sense for those companies to exit to bigger companies in the energy sector so that they can go to the next level. So I think you're going to have a lot of venture investors that come in at reasonable valuations and then companies exit for say 250 million, 500 million, those kind of numbers. And don't necessarily need to go public and go through all that. Hmm. So it's just a philosophy on, on how the energy transition is going to unfold. Another thing is we always say and, not or. So you see a lot of arguments online. Hydrogen. No, hydrogen sucks. We got to do this. We got to do oh, batteries. Yes. We got to do this. And everybody has their pet technology that they fight about. This is really going to be an and situation where there's a lot of different techs in many different applications. And there's going to be picks and shovels in all of them. And there's going to be a lot of money to be made. And of course, there'll be a lot of losers too. Either we have winners and losers. But I think people have to be, entrepreneurs in this sector also have to be humble and think in terms of, okay, if I can sell my company to General Electric and take advantage of their global distribution network and 100 years of being in business, even if it's not as giant of evaluation as I thought I was going to get, I might want to do that because we, for the entrepreneur, it's usually a binary event, meaning if they execute, they're, they're set, essentially set for life. So don't get caught up in the valuation too much. It's really yeah. get caught up in being successful and making a difference. I really, you know, I, I really like what you said, and this gave me a, a bit of a light bulb moment, a GE light bulb moment. My background's been in the world of financing and building tech startups. And so that was really, the, that's a 10 to 1 kind of thing. Every 10, one's your winner, provides your return to, to the LPs kind of thing. So that framework is contrary, like you say, there's a winner take all to what we're talking now in energy transition, where there can be a lot of winners with just different use case applications. And, and in that, for the investors coming in, the communication to them, I think, as well. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is that, you know, we're not we're not looking for for a, a multi billion dollar exit here. This company we see could have an exit in 250 million to 500 million dollar exit to a large player in the next coming years. From what we see, you know, perhaps there's a dialogue in and around that versus we need it to be a billion dollar success and so you make your money as an LP. Like it's kind of a there's a paradigm shift there that you just provided for me about how to finance these these kind of deals. Yeah, I don't want to say that th there won't ever be those unicorns because there there will be some. Yeah. But we do see opportunities for multiple parties to win, both and and on the venture side as well as the project side. Like just because I'm building a hydrogen project in Pennsylvania, it's not even competitive with one that would be in let's say Wyoming, for mm. example. So yeah. both of them can win and they both can build multi-billion dollar projects and have a great outcome for the investors and the entrepreneurs. And and the two developers might 
choose to just talk to each other and help each other, right? So that, yes, that's an yeah. example. I mean, for example, in the utility world, I know Nextera is a utility here in Florida that owns FPL. And so it's a traditional sort of traditional world. They talk a lot to Southern companies, Southern companies up in Georgia, and they exchange ideas and try to help each other. because they're yeah. not really competing. They're serving two different markets. And if, if somebody's providing a tech for hydrogen, it doesn't necessarily compete with somebody that's providing a tech for RNG. How's RNG going to be used? Maybe it's going to be used blended into pipeline to decarbonize natural gas. How's hydrogen going to be used? Remains to be seen, but we're seeing a lot of demand in the transport market. We're not yeah. seeing so much RNG trying to be used in heavy duty trucks, like in large scale trucks. Whereas with hydrogen, we are seeing that. You could be providing tech for those markets. Each company could crush it and do very, very well, but they're not really competitive. So that's what we're seeing. I agree wholeheartedly. There's probably going to be, there's probably going to be more money deployed, more winners, maybe not as you might not have your Google, Apple, Facebook, you might have a hundred companies that all do really, really well. Oh, fascinating. Very cool. If I was one of those companies and whether it be the, the earlier stage product market fit, still venture or later stage proven tech, big infrastructure play kind of thing. How can I best work with you as an investment banker? If I was a CEO coming to you and saying, we need to raise some capital. So what I, what I would say is first, get your story good. And by good, I mean, succinct. We get a lot of technical founders that just have a lot of trouble sort of telling the story. And it's important to be able to communicate with brevity and with specificity around what's going on. So I'd say that's the first thing. And then once you've, once you've sort of done that, understand what you're going to need to go to market. And, and by that, I mean, so you want to you at least have just a basic teaser framework put together of, of what, you're, what you're offering. Think about how much money you need to raise and think about use of proceeds. Those are, those are sort of the big ones. So have your story short and sweet. Be able to talk about what, how much money you need to raise and what you're going to use it for. Those are, the, those are the big items. And then there's, of course, a million other items that we would talk to folks about. But that, those are the big ones. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen a few decks in my time that come out and it's like 45 pages long. You're like, what? is this. And one of our past guests made the point that when you're first, your, your pitch deck and your initial pitch is not about getting investment. It's about winning their time, winning them over and to, to enough to say, yeah, you know what? I'll take another meeting. And so the way I, I view this is that's where you lead with emotion and not just facts and figures straight out of the gate. Perhaps it's a little different in the world of the energy and what you're doing. But if you can come out with a real clear problem and state that and just get them to go, aha, okay. And you're like, okay, that's enough for now. Let's get another meeting. That kind it's of- It's even more so in this because in the world of tech, a lot of the products people are using themselves. So ah, yes. think about a search engine, like, okay, great. Yahoo was not that great. Google was awesome. The first time you use it, you instantaneously know it's better. You just saw it, with yeah. energy- you know, energy products people aren't using on a day-to-day -day basis. The investors are probably not using them on a day-to-day -day basis. So it, it does take longer to get people to understand the need, understand what's good about them, and be ready to communicate that. I'm curious about, this is just off the cuff here, you've got behind you, for our listeners, you've got a picture of Nikola Tesla. 
on the wall. Why is that? What's that mean to you? Yeah, so let me just say, fact check, this story may not be fully true, but okay. a story that people like facts. to tell. Yeah, so, <laughs> but a story that people like to tell in the energy sector is about the fight between Tesla and Edison. So Edison's the founder of General Electric. And Tesla is, let's say, one of the early fathers of Westinghouse. And it was a competing technology back in the day. And one used AC current and one used DC current, right? And Edison's framework ultimately was the one that won out. And why was that? Everyone said Tesla's was better. But the truth of what happened was, is at the World Fair, Edison brought out a horse and he used Tesla's current to basically shock the horse and kill it. And so with that, the story is that General Electric took off and Edison's career took off and his uh, technology went to the next level and Tesla was really never to be heard of much again. And that's one of the reasons why I think nowadays, for example, why Elon chose Tesla was because he was ultimately smarter and had a better technology and he wanted his company to be technically focused and let's say not so much BS associated with it now. I don't know if that story is really true or not. You'd have to Google it and really research it. But it just reminds me of sort of that play, that interplay between tech and commercial, and that you really need both in order to be successful. Hmm. Interesting. It's cool that you've got it on, uh, on your wall as a reminder, if you will. Next, let's talk about energy media, because this is something that you and I share in common is podcasting now. And, and in our pre-call there, you said you've actually never been on that side of the the mic, if you will. You've been a host instead. Let's talk about what you're doing there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what I really wanted to do is just get interesting people on these kind of podcasts. And selfishly, I'll say this. Everybody's like, create content. If you want to grow your business, create content. Well, you know what? Writing written content every day, every week, every month is really freaking hard. It's hard to do it. It takes a lot of work, a lot of time, and it's hard to be good at it. But I heard so many great stories when I started off in the energy industry, going back to 2009, 10, 11, brilliant people. And I just felt like if we get those brilliant people and interview them and talk through things, that's a great way to create content and help people get the word out about what they're doing. So we started a podcast called Energy Superheroes. It's on Spotify. Trying as hard as we can to be interesting, trying to be entertaining. We've had some amazing guests and slowly, 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 our traffic's growing. We're getting more people, more views, more entertaining guests. And it's, it's been a really great pleasure. I actually just enjoy it. There's no revenue model there. I don't think any venture investor would invest in it because it's just <laughs> uh, it's just sort of a passion project, but enjoying yeah. it a lot and also meeting some really cool people. And I've met some clients from Energy Media as well. Oh, nice. I have to say my biggest regret about the Insider's Guide to Finance, the podcast we're on now, is that I didn't start it sooner. It's yeah. been a really incredible journey to learn and to meet people and the relationships that have come from it and the connections that I've been able to make has been really a, a fascinating thing. So yeah, I think it's I, I think it's a very worthwhile pursuit. And I love the ability now for us all to be our own media companies for us all to go and and bring stories forward that can help push a, a mission forward, if you will. It's a neat time in history, if you ask me. It's super. It's a super cool time. Now, the, the one piece of advice I'll give on that is you must have a team unless you don't have a day job. 
Like, Oh God, I know. You yeah. know, in the beginning I tried to do everything myself and I was pulling my hair out and I couldn't get it done. Yeah. I think we I originally came up with the idea in 2020. So right when, really right when COVID hit, I said, trade shows are all going to be shut down. I want to do something virtually. That was really the only thrust of it. And yeah. then I came up with the name Energy Media and was like, holy crap, I can't believe this domain's available. Yeah, no kidding. So I was really lucky, godenergy.media, which I think is a really cool domain. And then we, you know, just, I start off doing interviews, did a different formats, ultimately set it on the podcast format. But what I would say to everyone out there trying to do it is you've got to have a team. On our team, we have Laura, we have Brittany, we have Carolina, we have Levi, we have a whole team of folks that helps execute on this. Now, I... Since there is no revenue model, they're not full time only yeah. on that. I have them doing other stuff like for our business, but yeah. pretty much my myself and my partner Vince, both in our inter, in our investment banking practice and in the energy media business, it would be impossible without the team. So he and I are like really blessed to have an incredible team. It would just not be feasible. Yeah, it is an incredible amount of work. To be honest, I mean, I think that I think I. I almost worked myself to to death in the first episodes and I was trying to publish every week and yeah. all by myself. I had an editing third party, which I'd send them off to. But just even that of reaching out, getting people, getting it post, all that kind of stuff. And now we're very fortunate to have Maddie and, and our editing team and then Susanna to the, the promotion, all that kind of good stuff. But that is a big thing. I, I don't think people realize how much work goes into a simple conversation. It's a tremendous amount of work and a tremendous amount of process as well. So getting the process right, like you could have 20 good workers, but if your process is messed up, they won't do a good job. So as, as the leader, it's up to you to set the process and then get the right people to execute on that. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, in my experience, I 100% agree that it's a progress thing, but as, as kind of the leader of the podcast, if you will, I, saw, I would say we need progress because I'm bad at it. Yeah. And very fortunately, the teams come around and we've been able to instill that and it's starting to work. But you kind of know your role and know your lane. And I know mine is not is not, you know, sticking to that. It's getting told what to do there. So I wanna I wanna ask you another question about your career. Investment banking is a it can be a grind, right? Like it's it's hard. It's long hours and there's a lot there. What professional setbacks have you had? that you look back on and say, you know what, that was actually something that has, has yielded something for you you didn't expect? No, absolutely. That's a great question. I helped start a company called Power Phase. That's how I originally really dove into the energy sector. And Power Phase makes an upgrade system for gas turbine plants, which effectively it's, I don't try not to get too technical, but it makes these plants have more power and more energy behind them. And okay. that was another example of where I didn't know much about the energy sector, but there was a co-founder by the name of Bob Kraft, who's brilliant aerothermal engineer that came up with this technology. I was fortunate enough to be part of that team. And so I got to do that. And this was an example of where we conquered product market fit. We got it installed at some utilities. It's been installed all over the world. And Unfortunately, it never scaled as rapidly as we wanted it to. Now, it's been successful. It has had one of those, let's call it some, some nice hits, but it, it never went to that super level. And at the time, which is back in like 2018, when I realized that was the case, it was really crushing to me because I love the company and I was, I was planning to stay there for the long run. Ultimately, I had to move on. And when I left, I 
focused on sort of an energy corporate development type role and then transitioned from there into investment banking. And that ultimately was for me, that move into investment banking was the best move I've ever made in my career. The reason is just I spent even bef- before power phase, I had an e-commerce company. Before that, I had a digital media company. So I spent my whole career as a founder. And then moving into investment banking, I've just enjoyed it a lot more because I can work with a lot of different companies and help other founders be successful. And so the the day-to-day grind of just having your own thing where you're the founder, you're focused on just that one company, it takes years. You know, it's a, it's a seven-year process. Now, for some, that sort of small incremental improvements over seven years, they thrive on that. For me, I would much rather help other founders and be able to work on five, six, eight deals at a time and see lots of different things. It just fits better with my personality. So that's an example of a setback where it ultimately turned into a really good move for me. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Being able to step out and kind of, it's always a bugger when things don't work out as, as you, you know, when you build your expectations too, but then when you look back and able to use all that experience to, to do what you now, now do what you really enjoy. Sounds absolutely. And and ultimately that's life. You know, that's the startup grind. If you starting a company and scaling it to compete with major companies, it's the hardest thing in the world to do. Otherwise everybody would be doing it. Oh yeah. And they already say 95% of businesses fail within the first five years. But if you go for just like, okay, I'm going to do a scaled venture-backed startup and compete with major corporate company. It's a lot more than that. Like it's, it is really the hardest thing to do. Yes, it really is. I don't think people give enough credit to early stage teams, management teams, CEOs and founders who actually do the long run, right? And make it happen. It's, it's a, it's a grind. No, not enough credit is given. There's, there is no doubt about that. It is the hardest thing to do. You know, one of our guests said once that these are the heroes of our where they should be the heroes, recognize the heroes of our modern day. And, and I agree. I mean, it's, it's really a good founder and a good leader can give a lot of people a lot of purpose and a reason to get out of, out of bed in the morning and be proud. And I know that you're actually tight on time. So I want to ask you one more question before we jump. That is about books or other media that's been really influential for you that's helped guide your career. What do you have in mind? There's so many things, but I'll give you one thing in particular that I don't think a lot of people probably saw. But on Netflix, there's a show about Genghis Khan, and it's specifically called Polo. Okay. Okay. And so it's Marco Polo and sort of his interaction with actually Kublai Khan. And then Kublai Khan is like the grandson of Genghis Khan. And this is the Mongolian Empire. So I don't know if you'll be able to see this. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. So I don't know. You probably can't read it because it's backwards on the screen. No, I got it there. Yeah. It says the merit in action lies in finishing it to the end. Hmm. And what's amazing about Genghis Khan, he was the most he was the most incredible conqueror of all time. Obviously did a lot of bad things. So we'll leave that yeah. we'll leave that off the table. But when you watch that and you see this amazing culture, you're wondering how did the Mongolian Empire just like brush all across Asia and conquer the whole known world faster than any other empire? So I did some research in Genghis Khan and for me, that finishing it to the end, like that's been my focus because ultimately in investment banking, you're only as good as your last deal. So you've got to finish, you've got to close. And it's just a, a mantra of pushing things over the finish line. Awesome. Genghis Khan, fascinating, fascinating history there. And yeah, I like how you've put that to work. It reminds me of Carlin's hardcore history. 
and he talks about the Mongolian Empire. Have you heard listen to that? I actually haven't, but I'm going to check it out now. It will knock your freaking socks off, man. It is just, <laughs> I really enjoy the work he does on his podcasts, like four or five hours in some of these podcasts, but just incredible. And the way he talks about the Mongolian Empire and the history there is just like, like rip your face off. <laughs> yeah, it's super crazy. So that's one thing. I watch so many other things. Also give a shout out to The Last Kingdom, which is another show on Netflix that love. I mean, now that show beginning to end is amazing. Mm-hmm. And it's about how the Danes came to England and sort of fought with the British in the Middle Ages and the settling of the English, the five kingdoms of England. That's why it's called the last kingdom. So wow. in terms of lessons and and something that was that was really well made beginning to end, because a lot of these shows, like they just end them abruptly. Maybe they get canceled and it's like they didn't oh, really yes. think them through. But this one, beginning to end is amazing. It's five seasons. And that's just a lesson. And when you watch that, my takeaway is, our modern world is just like we're cradled like little babies in the modern world. So oh, it yeah. makes you sort of think twice about, let's say, bad mouthing fossil fuels. I mean, one gallon of gas does the work of 30 strong men in a day. It's so right. revolutionary what that brings to us. And it's and it's pure, dense energy in a very strong form. So anything, like I say, in the energy transition that's going to get us off fossil fuels it has to be better than fossil fuels. And so it has to be controllable, storable, and powerful. The only thing I see that's out there that could possibly do it is hydrogen. Still way, way too expensive to compete with, with oil and gas, but hydrogen could potentially do it. We're using it to launch rockets into outer space. So it's obviously super powerful. And I'll leave your guests with one more note on hydrogen that people haven't thought of. It has one up on fossil fuels, and that is you can make it anywhere. So if you're far flung in the middle of nowhere, you can put up a windmill, a solar farm with an electrolyzer and actually make hydrogen. Now, again, it's too expensive. It doesn't work economically in a lot of situations. It does work in many, but I think at least it has the promise to be better than fossil fuels. And we're, we as human beings are flourishers. We're people that want to take the world to the next level and thrive. So the whole model of like, Reduce, reuse, recycle. While I do think it has value, it's not going to do energy transition. We need onwards and upwards. And mm-hmm. there's going to be more energy, more people using energy. There's 3 billion people that don't even have energy right now. We need them to have energy and all of us need more because guess what? We really love these things. Yeah. So, and these things are only hogging more and more energy. So the point is we need more cost-effective energy, not less. We need something that's better than fossil fuels, not worse in order to do energy transition. Peter, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for making the time. Corey, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.